Let's get into God's word together. Turn your Bibles, uh, Genesis 29. We're going to start at verse 31 as we work our way through the book of Genesis. Um, we are making progress. Um, kids, how many of you have heard the saying, um, when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a what? Anybody know? Any of the kids know? No? Anyone else? All you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? Every problem looks like a nail. Hammers are pretty useful. A skilled worker with a hammer can do a lot of amazing things, but when all you have is a hammer, when the only thing you know how to do is hit stuff, um, you're pretty limited in what you can fix, right? Imagine you brought in a repairman to look at your violin that just wouldn't quite hold its tune. Or maybe your computer wasn't saving things properly. Or, or maybe um, you have this china doll that has a crack on the arm and the repairman comes in for one of those carrying a 28-ounce framing hammer. That's a big hammer. What do you, like, you're not letting this guy anywhere near your violin or your computer or your china doll. Um, that kind of work needs a different tool, needs different skills, different instruments. Parents, any of us uh, fall prey to this? I know I do. This was my prayer request with our small group guys this week. Um, and now, now my kids are listening, so this just got real. Um, way too quick to jump to discipline, right? That's my hammer. I've got it. I've got it ready. I can put an end to this argument. I can solve the problem. I can diffuse the situation right now. Everybody loses screen time. And the next person to speak loses screen time for a week. Problem solved. Peace restored. Parenting win. Father of the year. Right? It worked. Now I can get back to reading my book or watching my hockey game or whatever incredibly important thing I was doing because it's over. Right? It's dealt with. Well, no, it isn't. The problem wasn't actually resolved. In fact, at that point, I don't even know what the problem was. I couldn't be bothered. And the sin that was at the root of that problem certainly hasn't been drawn out and identified and repented of. The hearts of my kids haven't been turned to Christ, to the forgiving and transforming work of the gospel. The problem's not solved. There's a festering infection, and I just slapped a Band-Aid on it. Discipline is necessary. Discipline is biblical. It's commanded as part of parenting. Um, but, but, but not every problem is a nail. Being a father takes a little more work and a little more wisdom, um, more intentional and personal care than just throwing out random discipline. So a good father... A good father has more tools in his toolbox. A good father will deal differently with different situations. In fact, even different children in the same situation are dealt with differently, with, with precision. Here at the end of Genesis 29, the beginning of Genesis 30, um, the, the Lord kind of pulls back the curtain for us, and we, we see him at work in the lives of these two ladies. And what we see is God, the perfect father. God the perfect Father. Of course He is. He's all-knowing. He's infinitely patient, infinitely wise, infinitely loving. 
So it's not at all surprising to see him there giving this, this perfect care, perfect specific discipline and instruction and parenting to, to each of his unique children in this situation. If you remember from two weeks ago, just give us some backdrop here. Um, the first part of chapter 9, Jacob traveled to Haran to find a wife, and he ran into Rachel at the well, the perfect candidate, and, and she was beautiful, and it's like love at first sight. And we went back, uh, he went back with Rachel to, to her family's home, met her father Laban and, and her older sister Leah. Kids, do you remember the contrast between Rachel and Leah? What's the difference between Rachel and Leah? Rachel was what? Beautiful. It says that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Leah, somebody remember what it said about Leah? She had weak eyes, which is in direct contrast to beautiful. Um, so maybe we kind of turn that today like she was a little hard on the eyes. She was not beautiful. She wasn't pretty. Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob worked for seven years to earn the right to marry Laban's daughter, uh, and Laban did a bait and switch. Laban pulled the rug out from under Jacob. On the day of the wedding, he switched daughters. So Jacob wound up accidentally marrying Leah instead of Rachel. Do you think Jacob was excited about that? Not so much. Not so much. This is not what he expected. This is not the woman he loved. This wasn't the plan. This isn't what I worked seven years to get. But it's too late. They were married. And so Laban comes up with this other plan, almost like he had planned it ahead of time. Well, you can work another seven years, um, and I'll give you Rachel now, and you can work the next seven years to, to pay her off, to earn her. Now, if you think this is a bad idea, you're absolutely right, right. This is not God's plan for marriage, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, one man, one woman for life. That's God's plan. This isn't it. This is broken. This is upside down. This is messed up by sin, but this is what happened. And God is still working in the middle of it. He's still working out his plan. He's still working in the lives of everybody here. God, the, the perfect father, is working out his perfect plan in the lives of his children. So let's pause here for a moment. Let's, let's pray, and then we'll take a closer look uh, at this text and, and, and walk through it together. Um, would you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word this morning, Lord, humble us. Lord, we so quickly come with hearts that are quick to make excuses, quick to push conviction to the side, Lord, we so love to listen to your word preached and apply it to the person beside us. Lord, would you apply these words to our hearts this morning? Would you be at work in us? Lord, I pray for those who are wounded and broken and hurting this morning that they would be comforted. They would be built up and strengthened. Lord, I pray for those who come with pride, with sin. Lord, that you would bring repentance, that you would bring humility and brokenness before you. God, I pray if there's anything that I've prepared to say that is not of you, that's not true to your word, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten. Um, but Lord, that your word would go forth, that you would accomplish as you promised, 
uh, everything you plan to do through your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start off just looking at the end of chapter 29, um, verses 31 through uh, 35. And what we see here uh, is that the perfect father comforts the wounded. The perfect father comforts the wounded. Follow along with me. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore uh, therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. At some level, Leah had to be involved in this plan to trick Jacob. She knew he didn't love her. She may well have grown to believe that she was unlovable. After all, this is, this is her own father setting up this scheme. I know how we'll get you married, Leah. We're going to trick Jacob. We'll swap you out. He thinks he's marrying Rachel and he'll actually marry you. This will be great. She went along with it, maybe even helped out. But as this plan plays out, as you can imagine, this is just crushing to her soul. This is deeply wounding humiliating. How, how dehumanizing for her. Can you imagine living the rest of your life having been pawned off by your father under a lie, married to someone that you tricked into marrying you, who now is going to be a little bitter about that, who know, you know doesn't love you, you know he doesn't think you're precious or beautiful. On top of that is your sister married to the same man, And he's enamored with her. You you constantly see his love for her lived out in front of you. You can imagine it's likely that Leah um, has maybe felt insecure for a long time. She is the unbeautiful daughter. She's always overshadowed. She's always overlooked. Her younger sister constantly gets the limelight and she gets cast aside. Now that's become her permanent reality in marriage. Leah has this deep wound. This is is trauma in her soul. Not easily mended. And so simple as they may be, those first four words uh, in, in, in verse 31 are incredibly, incredibly significant. When the Lord saw. The Lord saw Leah. That's a big deal for Leah. God saw her. She had a lifetime of being overlooked, of being tossed aside, unloved, unvalued. But the Lord saw her. He saw her woundedness. He saw that she was hated. God saw her in her pain. And as a good father, he comforts her. And he comforts her through giving her children. 
in that culture, the most, the most important thing, the most significant thing that a, that a wife could do for her husband um, was to bear him a son. The Lord gave Leah a son. And so she calls his name Reuben. The name Reuben um, looks like the, the combination, the mashing together uh, of the word see and son. And so in some sense it means see, I have a son. Um, I think the, the indication here, the implications is the Lord has seen me and gave me a son. She explains the name saying the Lord has looked upon my affliction. The Lord saw me. The Lord gave me a son. Leah had hoped that now, because of her son, her husband would love her. This will, this will fix the problem with Jacob. Not long after she conceived, she bore another son. And we get an idea of how well the first son works because she calls his name Simeon. Simeon means to hear. She explains it, verse 33, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. So Reuben means God sees. Simeon means God hears, but she's still waiting for her husband to love her. It's not working. It's not doing what she had hoped. The Lord saw her. The Lord heard her. The perfect father is comforting her in her pain. Just pause here for a minute. Maybe you identify with Leah. Maybe you feel like you're always the one who is overlooked, passed by. Man, I grew up with a brother who was like, he sat down at the piano, I kid you not, and, and like at three, four years old, he has little songs composed. He'd be playing this ornate full piece, and you're like, wait a second, that's the song we heard on the radio on the way here. Um, he would pick up a hockey stick, and he was the captain of the team. Um, he got a full-ride scholarship to Harvard. I, a little overlooked. Man, my parents were great. My parents loved me. I don't have some deep childhood trauma, but I battled that. My dad loved that my brother played the piano and he played for worship in church and, 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 and he got all these accolades and it's pretty easy just to feel like, well, nobody sees me. I, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any value. Maybe you feel that way. This world is a broken, brutal place. Without a doubt, there, there are some here this morning who, who are deeply wounded, really hurt, significant trauma. Maybe not the same way as Leah, but, but maybe you've been wounded, abandoned by a father, unloved by a husband or wife, always feeling like you're, you're overshadowed, overlooked, cast aside. No one sees you. The Lord sees you. The Lord sees you. Let that sink in. He knows your pain and he cares. I want you to know that. I want you to be able to cling to that in your soul. That's huge. But I also want us to see what these next two sons reveal. They show us that for Leah, as the wounded victim here, the Lord needs to do, and the Lord is not at all hesitant to do, what our culture, what our world, what modern psychology would never dare to do, refuses to do. The Lord sees her and hears her and has compassion on her, but he also corrects her. The perfect father also corrects the wounded. Leah's pain is real. It's deep. He doesn't miss that. 
She's absolutely a wounded victim here, but part of the reason that she is so deeply wounded is that the orientation of her heart is wrong. It needs to be changed. It needs to be corrected. Now, if I were to throw that out on Facebook or Twitter, I'd, I'd get slapped at the label of victim shaming and, and, and this is just not okay. But look with me at God's word. See if this isn't the case. In the birth of her third son, we begin to see this, this desperation becomes pretty obvious. She calls him Levi, which means something like attached or, or joined. Um, that name will take on a new significance later as the, the Levites will be attached to the Lord as priests. But, but here, what do we see? Leah is just desperate a third time. Verse 32, after Reuben, now my husband will love me. Verse 33, after Simeon, the Lord has seen that I'm hated by my, by my husband. Now with Levi, she says, surely now he'll be attached to me. She's trapped. She's trapped in this loveless marriage as the Lord comforts her with children. Rightly, she, she understands that. She sees that as, as, as God hearing her and, and seeing her. But wrongly, she's still desperate for her husband. She's still looking for her, her meaning and her purpose and her identity in him. It's not going to work. Her wound is deep because her heart is wrong. She can't fix this. She can't be healed as long as her heart is pointing the wrong way. The reason she hurts so deeply is that, that, that she's looking to earthly things to fill this spiritual need. She's looking to her husband for, for an affirmation and an attention of the people around her to do something in her that those things were never meant to do, would never be able to do to give her meaning and purpose and identity. She, she has to look to the Lord for that. She cannot be healed without being corrected. Even when we are genuinely victims who have been wounded by someone else's sin, our, our healing still comes through some correction. Jacob never truly saw Leah. Laban never truly saw Leah. Those things hurt and they wound, but the Lord has never for a moment not seen Leah. His love for her is perfect, has always been there, is full and complete. She needs to see that. And the Lord is a perfect father, is, is gently leading her down this path, coming to the, to the end of herself having these three sons still desperately longing for her husband's attention. And we don't know when it happens or what exactly happened, but, but there's this seismic shift between the third son and the fourth son. Verse 35, she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she called his name Judah. Judah means he will be praised. He will be praised. Though Leah had been sinned against, her true comfort, her true healing would only come with this correction in her own heart. She's been desperate and scrambling for the love of her husband and, and the lack of that love is slowly destroying her. For her to be truly healed, the Lord needs to take her eyes off of that, needs to give her something that will sustain her in spite of that. She needs to see the Lord, to fix her eyes on him. 
The needs of the soul are never filled by the things of this world. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. The naming of Judah in, in, is Leah's final surrender. This time, I praise the Lord. I give up. I'm going to stop striving and struggling and fighting. This time, I'm going to fix my eyes on him. Her fulfillment, her hope, her identity, it's in him. Finally. And of course, Judah. It's through the line of Judah that God's ultimate healing would one day come. Through the, the generations of, of Judah would eventually come Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate comfort of God. The comfort that the Lord sees our pain, that he hears our cries, that he, that he comes to, to rescue us. That, that through Jesus then comes also the ultimate promise of God. That for those who trust him, who, who reorient their hearts and rest in him and find their hope in him and their peace in him, for them there will be healing. There will be wholeness, life, and life abundant in him. Isaiah 61.1 foretells of the coming of Jesus saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound. Jesus came to heal our wounds, to rescue us from a broken and sinful world that causes our wounds. And even the, even the wounded who stand guilty before God, because we've set our hope on those earthly things, we've worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. That's how we got to this place. Jesus came that we could be forgiven. And that in that forgiveness, we could be reconciled to God. We could be made right with him, restored to relationship with, with him that we need so desperately. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We might be restored to him. 2 Corinthians 5.8, all this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That's what we need. That's what we truly need. That's where true comfort comes from. When we're reconciled to God, when we find our, our hope and our meaning, our, our identity in him and his love for us. The Lord comforts the wounded. And we have to take our eyes off of the things of this world, stop being defined by our circumstances and the people around us, things that only wound us more, and look to Him. Set our hope on Him. He is a good Father, comforting, even correcting the wounded. Secondly, then, we see in Rachel, the Lord confronts the wicked. He comforts the wounded, He confronts the wicked. Leah was wounded. Rachel is proud. And the Lord deals uniquely with each of them, individually with each of them. Look at chapter 30. We're going to look at verses 1 to 24. Let me read it for us. Then Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, and she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. 
Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with a mighty wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And so she called his name Naphtali. Then Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children. She took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. And then Leah, uh, Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. And so she called his name Asher. And the days of the, uh, oh, sorry, um, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me tonight, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. And so he shall, uh, she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again. And she bore a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him a sixth son. And so she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord Add to me another son. The focus shifts here um, from 29 to 30, from looking at Leah to now looking at Rachel. Leah was always overlooked, always overshadowed. Rachel was always in the limelight. She was the beautiful sister. She was the sought-after one, now the beloved wife. I think Rachel was probably accustomed to having everything go her way. Now that the Lord is comforting Leah, giving Leah children. Verse 1 tells us Rachel envied her sister. Rachel envied her sister. Isn't it twisted? Isn't it ironic how sin works and corrupts the heart? Rachel had the one thing that her sister wanted. She had the love and affection of Jacob. Leah is not comforted by the gift of, of sons because her heart is so desperately set on Jacob. Rachel had Jacob, but rather than delighting in Jacob, rather than maybe even delighting in God's good gifts of children to her sister, Rachel envies her sister. She grew bitter. Rachel's proud. 
Rachel seems to have believed that, that she deserved every good thing. That somehow God owed it to her. And so she's bitter and envious toward Leah, who was given what, what she thought she deserved. Unable to have children of her own, Rachel responds the same way Sarah and Abraham did. She gave her handmaiden, Bilhah, to Jacob as a wife to have children on her behalf. This is a, a concubine, a slave wife. Again, not God's plan for marriage. This is twisted. This is sinful. This is wrong. But this is what they did. The plan kind of works. It has the intended outcome. Bilhah bore two sons to Jacob, sons that are counted as if they were Rachel's because she's Rachel's slave girl. And you can see Rachel has this, these mixed emotions. Verse 6, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. She's, she's conflicted. She feels God's judgment and her lack of children, but now she's striving for, for human, by human means, trying to obtain children, trying to kind of claw her own way into God's blessing. So she claims this is God's blessing, but, but she feels the tension here because sinful strategies don't bring God's blessing. Sinful strategies don't bring God's blessing. The naming of these two sons just shows her, her bitter heart. Dan means vindication. God has vindicated me in this battle against my sister. Naphtali means to wrestle. She says, I've wrestled with my sister and I've won. It's maybe a little bit optimistic, but can you imagine all the names of these children running around this house? Every time you're calling a kid, you're, you're making some statement about the brokenness of this, this whole family. Rachel's still envious. She's still unfulfilled. She's still hurting. She's still bitter. And she still has no children of her own. Sadly, Leah is drawn into this battle, into this mess. She follows Rachel's lead, and, and not to be outdone, she gave her handmaiden also to Jacob. Her handmaiden, Zilpah, also bore two children. She names them Gad and Asher, um, which translates as fortunate and happy, as you can tell by the descriptions there. She's gloating. She's holding this over her sister's head. All the ladies call me fortunate. All the ladies call me happy because of all the children that I have. It's a good reminder here. These biblical characters are real people. They are faulty and frail. Even though chapter 29 ended with this, with, with Leah learning to, to trust the Lord, God bringing her to that place. I mean, it's just not even verses later. She's drawn back into the mess. She's relapsing here. Down to verse 20 is the full relapse with her six sons. She says, now my husband will honor me because I've borne him six sons. She's still wrestling with this. But look at the position that God has put Rachel in. 29.31 opens the narrative. This sets the scene. The Lord opened Leah's womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah bore four sons. Rachel had none. Rachel put up her slave girl and got two sons, but then Leah matches it with her slave girl and gets two more. And then Leah, um, th sorry, this, this battle then culminates now. This strange story of the mandate, mandrakes. Um, and this is as weird as it looks. This is just strange. Um, the mandrake is this flowering plant that grows uh, in that region and uh, its roots look like a little man. 
um, some of them more than others. I think that's why these ones were maybe so special. Um, he found some that really looked like little men. Um, and, and it was common in ancient cultures, as this old text shows, that, that they, would, uh, they understood the mandrake to cause fertility. If you have mandrakes, um, you'll, you'll have a baby. You'll get pregnant. And so Rachel wanted them. Rachel uh, is trying to use any means to have a, a child, a son. And, and she made a trade with Leah. You give me the mandrakes, I'll give you Jacob. And, and so Jacob takes the night with Leah instead of with Rachel. And once again, rather than trusting in the Lord, Rachel's trying to do it her own way. She's trying to fix this. She's trying to make it happen. And, and once again, Leah conceived and bore a fifth son, Issachar. And then again, bore a sixth son, Zebulun. And finally, she bore a daughter, Dinah. I think the Lord's just kind of rubbing this in on Rachel. Like, man, this is rough. For those keeping score at home, that's four for Leah. And then two for Rachel's handmaiden, but not actually Rachel, then two more by Leah's handmaiden, just to even the score there, and then two more sons and another daughter to Leah. So six sons and one daughter from Leah and two from her handmaiden, and, and Rachel has two from her handmaiden and none of her own. This is brutal. This is, you just, I mean, Rachel, even in her pride, and we're starting to feel sorry for her, in the middle of all of this, though, the the Lord is, is doing this careful work in Rachel. She's proud in heart and shows up in her envy toward Leah. And if God wasn't going to give her what she wanted, then she's going to make it happen her own way. She's going to figure it out. I can do it. She tried the, the maidservant. That didn't satisfy. She tried the mandrakes and that just backfired. Rachel's envy and her, her pride or sin. And the Lord, as the perfect father, is graciously blocking all of Rachel's plans, shutting her down, crushing her plans. The Lord loved her too much to leave her in that sin. He's graciously confronting her through these trials, through this hardship. He's at work in it. No doubt Rachel's sitting there saying, God, I want out of this. This isn't kind. I don't, I don't like this. This isn't good. God is saying, hold on. I have a plan. Trust me. Before Leah started having children, she maybe didn't even realize her sin. But it was there. The circumstances don't create our sin, right? Much as we would love that to be the case, much as we would love to just push our guilt onto the circumstances around us, those things only bring to the surface what's already there. It's easy for us to think, well, I would never have gotten angry if he wouldn't have ripped me off. Kids, you would never say something like that, right? Well, I only hit him because he called me a name. It's his fault, right? He started it. I would never be jealous if he didn't unfairly get what I should have gotten. But that's not the way it works. Think of a, of a glass filled to the brim. Um, nothing comes out of the glass unless it's bumped, right? But when, when the glass is bumped, that doesn't determine what comes out of the glass. Whatever comes out of the glass comes out of the glass because that's what was already inside. 
If you're filled up with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and you get bumped, what comes out? These people are a little baffling, aren't they? You hit their car in the parking lot and they're like, it's okay, it happens, don't worry about it, it's not a big, let me help figure this out. Good things come out. But if you're filled with envy and strife and anger and pride and dissension and you get bumped, what happens? You bump into that person just gently in the, in the checkout line and all of a sudden everything comes flying. He's ready to throw down in the middle of the grocery store. Whoa, whoa where'd this come from? I was inside there. Rachel's filled with pride, with envy, with anger, with division, with selfishness. And the Lord, as a good father, is not going to leave her there. He has this tool in his toolbox just for her. And at the same time as he's teaching and, and comforting Leah, helping her to find hope in him, he's teaching Rachel the same thing by a different path. Rachel proudly trusted in herself. Rachel believed that she deserved everything. And God is graciously bringing Rachel to the end of herself, graciously, lovingly crushing her so that she'll see it, showing her her weakness, showing her her sin. Finally, verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her. Do you hear the echoes there of Reuben and Simeon? God saw Rachel. God heard her. Finally, Rachel conceived and bore a son, saying, God has taken away my reproach. She calls his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Joseph means the Lord adds. It's the Lord who gives. She's looking to God. This is the first time we see the name of the Lord on her lips. It's the first time she uses Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Rachel's finally coming to understand only the Lord truly gives blessing. It has to come from him. I can't get it. I can't do it any other way. I need to trust God. She's finally submitting to the fact that it's the Lord who adds. She's laying down her own pride, her own efforts. She's trusting in him finally humbled before God. As North Americans in particular, it is so ingrained in us to see the world through everyone getting what they deserve. That's, that's like peak value, merit-based. People should get what they deserve. And by our, our sinful nature, we pretty naturally believe that we deserve every good thing, Right? Because I'm a good person. Because I'm a kind person. Because even when I do what's wrong, my heart's in the right place. Right? I meant well. I had good reasons to do what I did. I deserve a, a good life. The world owes me happiness and peace and joy and comfort and, and every good thing. Because, because I'm me. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7 warns against that, corrects that. Paul writes that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast 
as if you did not receive it? That's a hard question. That cuts pretty deep. Why do you have a warm house to live in and a warm dinner home cooked to go home to? And that homeless guy out there in the cold has nothing to eat and nowhere to go. Why? Why has that happened? Now, you probably wouldn't say it out loud, but I think in almost all of our hearts, we quietly think, because I have a better work ethic, because I have made better decisions, because I didn't go down that road, because I didn't do drugs, because I, 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 I. We elevate ourselves over those who are less fortunate, who don't have the things. This idea that that you had something in yourself, some intrinsic value in you because I am better. Paul says, really? Where did you get that work ethic? Where, how did you come across that? Where did you get that, those decision-making abilities? Where did you come by that self-control? Your mental health, how did, you, how did you get that? The answer is, those are gifts from the Lord. God gave you that. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Why are you where you are and and not the other guy? There's no reason in you. 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7. The Lord kills, the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. The Lord brings low and he exalts. Boy, it's hard for us to accept. But true humility before the Lord, true worship of the Lord has to start there. We have nothing. He gave us everything we have, even who we are. I'm willing to bet when you you read the title of this section, God confronts the wicked. You probably didn't think, oh, that's me. No, wicked, those are are out there people. Those are really bad people. There's no wicked people here, not us. It's not true. Those awful people are so different from us. Pride is wicked. Pride is in us. We're sinners. Sin is wicked. And I was on a a trip a while back, ran into someone who um, is in ministry and and frankly, I don't think should be. In my mind, this this man has proved himself at least temporarily disqualified. I gotta confess, when I saw him, I looked down on him. I hated that he was there. My heart recoiled. I got angry. There's the physiological response I stood there in confident, arrogant, self-righteous judgment and, and the Lord just gutted me standing there. Something along the lines of, John, what do you have that you didn't receive? Now to be clear, I, I don't think my assessment is wrong. I still hold that perspective. He's, he's not qualified for ministry, but my heart was so wrong. My heart was looking down on him and elevating myself. And in doing that, who was I judging but God? 
Why would you let this guy be a minister in the church? And what the Lord used to crush me was realizing that the first step to get to that place was to assume that I was somehow different. I could only complain to the Lord that, that he had something he didn't deserve because rooted in me was the belief that I did deserve it, that I had earned it, that it was on me, that I had a right to what I had. I was more, more, more worthy, somehow better, and it's just not true. What do I have that I did not receive? Like God's grace. Job. 121, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked will I return, blessed. Uh, the, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's his. And we wrap our heads around that. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. It's all from him. There's no, there's no room left for pride. 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, there go I. Why am I not out on the street corner begging for nickels? Because of God's grace. Because his kindness that I did not deserve, did not earn. Rachel seems to finally have reached that place because the Lord dealt with her exactly, specifically, how she needed to be dealt with. He used her pain. He used her loss, he used her bitterness and her anger to expose the pride that was in her heart so that he could sanctify her, so that he could shape her and conform her. The Lord comforted wounded Leah. The Lord confronted wicked Rachel. The Lord is the perfect father. He works differently in these different situations, but he's always working. He's always working. Where's he at work in you right now? Where is he at work healing your woundedness? Maybe trying to correct you. Look, look at me. Stop chasing after those things. Your, your heart is oriented wrong. Bringing you to that place that you will finally say, this time I will praise the Lord. Where is he confronting your wickedness? Where is he graciously crushing you, humbling you? Maybe you've not even seen it yet. So that you would finally say, it's the Lord who adds. It's God who gives. It's God who takes away. Thank him. Look to him for every good thing. Every good thing that you totally do not deserve. And notice both of those situations. What's at the heart of the Lord's work? What's the, the, the center point of it? The centerpiece of God's work in us is always about turning our eyes and fixing our hearts more and more upon himself. That's it. That's what we need. That's the, the cure to our woundedness, the cure to our wickedness, is to see him more fully, more clearly, to put him at the center of our lives, of our hearts, and more and more around that glorious reality. That's why he sent his son to reveal himself in flesh and blood that we could see him. That's why his son died, to reconcile us to God, to restore that relationship 
that gives life and life abundant. That's why Jesus rose again. To give us this confident hope of a, of a future eternity with him. Life beyond this broken and beat up world. That's why he gives us communion. That week after week we would gather together, refocus, recenter, reorient our hearts, our lives around the reality of the, the death and the resurrection and the future hope of Jesus. That's what we need. We need to see him more clearly again and again and again. Remind ourselves of our need for him and his grace towards us. Um, Roman, why don't you come prepare to lead us uh, in worship as we prepare for communion. Um, as Roman sings, um, the elements would pass around. You're going to find two cups. Um, the juice is in the top and the bread is on the bottom, um, stuck together, hopefully not too tightly. Um, hang on to them and we'll partake together. Uh, if you're a visitor with us, we want to just invite you to, to join with us if you're a follower of Christ. This is for believers. This is for those who have put their trust in him and are able to say that Jesus has died for my sin and I have repented before him. Um, and for those who are walking in repentance, if there's blatant sin in your life that you're not willing to repent of, um, Paul warns we should examine ourselves. Um, we should be humbled and repentant before the Lord as we come to celebrate. Uh, so let's, uh, would, you, would you stand? Stand, let me pray, and then we'll join in song together. Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. Lord, what do we have that we do not receive from you? Every good gift, every perfect gift is from you coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. So we thank you. We thank you for the best gift, the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us, Lord to fix our eyes on him, to set our hearts on the hope that we have of, in Christ, of being restored to you. Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you turn our hearts more and more towards yourself, even as we sing, even as we partake together? May you um, fix our eyes on you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.